Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show, a podcast that takes a look at the news of the day, thoughtful conversations about things that matter. Uh, joining me today is Professor Anthony Cronman. He's the Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School, a former dean of Yale Law School, teaches in the areas of contracts, bankruptcy, jurisprudence, social theory, and professional responsibility. He was also a student two years behind me in college. But first, uh, these are deadly serious times. Claude, my God, my God, my God, Ukraine situation. Uh, give me your uh, reaction. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's almost like we said on uh, the first mini episode that we uh, did uh, this week uh, on Monday. What you don't want to see uh, is, you know, the Russians turning up the heat uh, a little bit on Ukraine. And that's exactly, you know, what we are beginning to see. Uh, they are pummeling cities. We're seeing them start take, taking cities. Um, you know, what is it going to take before there's more intervention internationally, more weapons and, and things like that? It's good. But how long will it take? Uh, how much help can that actually be, you know, before the, the solution is actual like, more people? Uh, with guns in their hands and not just more guns. And I think the key is just going to be the capital. It's going to be key. You know, what happens there and how it happens. Uh, does the president of Ukraine, does he lose his life? Uh, high-ranking officials who are staying behind, do they lose their life? Uh, starting to see reports with reporters having cameras and bombs going off behind them and, 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 and rubble in the air. Um, so how much longer can they, can, they, can they hold out without additional hands, without additional feet? And even if they need it, they're not going to get it from the international community. Um, and we know for sure, at least the way it seems right now, they're not going to surrender. They're not going to leave. Um, and, and, and so how bad can things get? I don't know. And, and unfortunately, I think we're going to see. Things are very bad. Uh, and I think you're right. I think it's going to get worse. You know, this guy is uh, targeting civilians. You know, they're, they're blowing up apartment houses. They're blowing up su suburban neighborhoods. This is uh, the Taliban. You know, when they took over, they were rough and cruel. And we saw some people die and people get beatings. But it wasn't systematic uh, elimination of people, which is what we're starting to see in Ukraine now. These bombs coming through and just taking out you know, huge segments of buildings where people live, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Henninger at Wall Street Journal has a great column. I've been reading everything. And he says uh, Putin's war in Ukraine is one of these, this changes everything moments or events. 9-11 was one. Uh, and this is one. They happen. And at the moment they happen, most sentient people recognize that the way we lived before is going to need adjustment. Mm-hmm. Europeans are seeing this. Uh, he's changed their world. I'm still reading him from Penninger. American president had a chance to recognize this new reality in his State of the Union. It didn't happen. An argument's going to emerge in Washington that spending on defense and national security needs to rise significantly in light of both Putin armies moving west and the threat from China. On this, of course, Biden said nothing. Henninger goes on to say... Um, this what's going on in Europe and Ukraine is the international equivalent writ large of defund the police. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah. Because, you know, they were under underfunding NATO. If you remember Trump was trying to get them all to put in their right share. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, now they're paying the price. Uh, they're, they weren't ready for this. And this is naked aggression. There's no good reason for this. There's no justification for this. Mm -hmm. uh, he can do it. He's got the power. We don't want to engage him. We don't want to do a no-fly zone. 
because that would mean we'd shoot down Russian jets and then we're at war. Right. We're not so damn sure we can win that war, Mm -hmm. especially if the Chinese join. Even if it's just the Russians, though, we'll defeat them, but we'll lose people. At what cost? Right. Yeah, nuclear, nuclear stuff, which means it seems you got to sit and watch this take place. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's awful. It puts in perspective what's important and what's not, you know. Mm-hmm. It puts aside all these things about being woke and all that. I mean, now, now we're talking serious stuff, talking about evil, talking about the real world, talking about people dying. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you know, you talk about, you know, this being one of those moments that, that changed everything after it, you know, the same way with 9-11, you know, and I think this, it is. Unfortunately, the things that change after it for this won't be able to we won't be able to live that out or walk that out or figure out what it is until after this is over. And we don't know what after this looks like, you know, right now, or, or as far as when it will be over, when it will be done. I think that it sends a clear message that, you know, you can't play around with uh, governments like, like, like Russia with Putin. You can't be. And so, and so then when, when that changes, the world can't deal with Russia the way the world used to deal with Russia anymore. Um, th- these do things go back. I mean, I understand that there are things that will hurt, the Russian people. Um, but maybe that's the price that's paid by their government, you know, uh, um, acting the way that it's acting until there's a regime, regime, uh, regime change there. Uh, can't deal with Russia the same way anymore. And then you look at China, yeah. you know, yeah, you've you got know. to take those threats seriously. There are some countries whose government will not, the way that they posture themselves, they don't belong in the international community. Did you see, I think it was Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. the assassination. Mm hmm. Did you see that? I did. I did. Yeah, he says, saying to people who are close to Putin, take him out did, and destroy well, your country. I mean, this is residual. Mm-hmm. There's going to be huge residual damage to, you know, to, to Russia. And if they have to occupy Ukraine forever, uh, I, we haven't mentioned the humanitarian crisis, not just the death of people, but people moving across the border. I mean, what's well, more than a million now. Right. By the way, another wokeness thing. I pointed this out the other day on Fox on the Stuart Varney show. Women and children should leave. Men should stay. Oh, my gosh. What kind of a distinction is that? Right. 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 Sounds like old school, doesn't it? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Sounds like someone stuck in the Stone Ages, huh? <laughs> that the How come nobody's <laughs> objected? How come nobody stood up and said, this is sexist? Right, right. And, well, and it's like you said, when you're faced with serious things like this, the ridiculous seems to kind of, you know, trail off. I haven't heard, a good, haven't heard any really loud, screechy arguments for gun control either. Right. I mean, ar- it was arming every single Ukrainian. They're giving mm-hmm. out guns like candy. Mm-hmm. I just saw a thing where a guy here is sending over a million rounds. Of ammunition. Right. But, you know, a million rounds of ammunition for guns and rifles. But if they got tanks. Right. And they want to use these uh, thermobaric weapons, you know, that mm-hmm. blow up and take your take your body apart. Mm-hmm. Not much good. I got fighting around this nuclear power plant, too. Crazy. Right. The thought um, that uh, Vladimir Putin is not in his right mind or there's something is that, have you seen or heard anything that may bring some merit to that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I watched, I heard Condoleezza Rice talking about it mm-hmm. and, you know, she met him. She knows him. She's a student of this. She said it's different now. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure he ever recovered from the loss of the Soviet empire. You know, the breakup, the freedom movement, mm-hmm. all these countries leaving the Soviet union. We don't talk about Soviet union anymore because there isn't any more. Any Soviet Union. Right. I don't know. 
I don't know what's in his mind any any more than I think people knew what was in Hitler's mind. But I'll tell you this, Zelensky is watching his moves on Dancing with the Stars Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> fabulous. He's actually a fabulous dancer mm-hmm. and an actor. Now they're calling him the, the Churchill in a, in a T-shirt. I mean, the guy is so impressive. I did that interview with Varney. He said, well, what do you think overall of State of the Union? I said, Frankly, all things considered, I'll take Zelensky over Biden. Right, right. Also seeing a lot of companies. Um, let's see, I think it was uh, IKEA shut down in, in, in Russia. Apparently yesterday there were tons of people trying to get to yeah. IKEA to buy yeah. Yeah. some supplies. I think Mercedes-Benz is not going to do anything yeah. as far as with cars yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, Spotify, uh, which this show is on, um, <laughs> the Russian office there huh. definitely, you know, stopped. Uh, yes, Netflix lost production. So well, well, the they problem do is... With, will they do that with China too? Well, right. Well, see, and you know who else is on that list? Nike is on that list too, if I'm not mistaken. Of companies who have um, kind of uh, halted, and, and, and the first thing I thought about when I saw Nike, you know, and maybe it's because it's thinking about the NBA was China. That's the first thing I thought about. Um, What's the I don't distinction know between killing people and having concentration camps? Yeah, no, right. Uh, so we see that, but again, that's going to hurt the Russian people. Putin and his guys—they don't, yeah, they don't care about IKEA being closed. What do they? What do they care? No, it's horrible. Horrible. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that's immediately stopped is buying Russian oil. Right. Let's right. turn on the, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. pipeline Keystone XL. Right. Uh, a statistic I think I cited: uh, the Keystone XL produces more oil in a month than Russia does in a year. Mm-hmm. And we willing, willingly, voluntarily turned our supply off and buying from Russia. It's just crazy because of the hold of the green movement. Yeah. Yeah. It's just nuts. It's just nuts. All right. Uh, well, let's, we'll see what Professor Cronman thinks about this, too. Can I add one more thing before we get Please, to yes. Cronman. Have you saw reports of, you know, Russian soldiers being captured, and especially the young ones, and uh, Ukrainians allowing them to use their, their cell phones to call their parents to let them know that they're okay, that they're yes, captured, yes. but they're okay. Yeah. Um, Russian soldiers being lost in the streets. Stopping to the locals asking, hey, how can I get here? Because it's what and them actually giving them directions to meet up. Like, yeah. <laughs> honestly, what's going on here? Vladimir Putin, come on. Apparently, uh, there are a lot of reports that this is not the cream of the cream of the Russian army. That These are conscripts, young guys, old tanks, old equipment doing the job, though. Right. Oh, yeah. No, it's doing the job. Yeah. Meantime, we're finalizing a deal with Iran uh, so they can, uh, in effect, develop nuclear weapons. God knows. God help us. All right, I hope it's a wake-up call, as Mr. Hanninger said, Mm -hmm. and we'll see. Podcasts have changed the way we get our news, entertainment, politics, everything. Uh They've rewritten the script. Uh, Somebody said to me this morning, I don't read op-eds, but I do listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. We hope you listen to this one. Well, there's another exciting development that's rewritten the script, too, and that's called Masterworks. Okay. Masterworks enables you to diversify your portfolio. This is for investors. Mm Mm-hmm. And potentially protected from market volatility. And you do so by investing in contemporary art with Masterworks. Ah, okay. Now, I'm not up on contemporary art, but boy, it's hot. Mm-hmm. And people love it. They're the fintech startup shaking up the alternative investing landscape. It lets you build a portfolio of fine art without spending millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Invest in Picasso, Warhol. Uh, Invest in paintings by iconic artists like these with Masterworks. Mm -hmm. 
Very interesting. Masterworks has an industry-leading research team, and it's created the first and only platform where anybody can buy and trade shares of paintings, giving you the same access enjoyed by millionaires and billionaires for generations. See, now you're talking my language, because I'm not a big art guy. Like, I sit there and I look at it, I don't get it. But I'm a money person. Give it a try. Our listeners get priority access to their latest offerings at masterworks.art slash bill. Okay. Masterworks.art slash bill. Join a new generation of investors. This is a new deal, boy. This is the the modern world. Join that new generation of investors at masterworks.art slash bill. And folks, see important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Masterworks, give it a look. All right, let's welcome Professor Anthony Kronman to the show. Thank you for your time today, Professor Kronman. Hello, sir. When's the last time we spoke? Oh, you know, it probably was in the uh, the spring of the fall of 1967 or spring of 1968, back in, uh, <laughs> back in some troubled hour, as I recall. 67 or 68, what was I doing there? I graduated 65. You five, okay. Uh, I have a recollection of you coming back to campus at some point before I finished up, is that conceivable? Or I, I did come back. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I came back. I got an honorary degree, actually. Did I see you then? You, well, I was a senior and you were a sophomore. So That's right. And you were, you were close friends with Steve Block and, yep. and Tim Lowe, who yep. were my uh, junior advisors yep. uh, over on the, uh, the freshman quad. And I'll never forget this, Bill, arriving um, with my suitcases in hand on the Trailways bus from Boston, this bewildered kid from Southern California who had no idea where he was or had gotten himself into, uh, looking at some, some, some young men playing a funny game with sticks and little baskets <laughs> on the end and wondering what the hell that was, and meeting Tim and Steve and they were drinking vodka milkshakes sitting on the, the stoop of my entryway. And I thought, well, it looks like college is going to be a lot of fun. Were they your junior advisors? They were. Resident yeah. advisors. Wow. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. knew them well. And they were, gosh, probably my closest friends there. I wore several hats. I inhabited several universes. I was in a fraternity, a jock fraternity, but a lot of my friends were N.A., right? Non-affiliated. Yeah. And, yeah. and weird people like philosophy majors, you know, yeah. Yeah. like like I was. Were you a philosophy major? I was a political science major. Okay. I think I but, probably took more courses in the philosophy department than I did in the political science department, but technically I wound up as a poli-sci major. Well, you were effervescent and ebullient, and you were just full of stuff and questions. And and why do you think this? Why do you think that? And I remember thinking, this guy's really good. He's really bright, but I want to get away from him for a little bit. I mean, no, you were. I, I would say this. I, I wasn't so much full of questions. I was full of answers. That okay. The, okay. I, okay. That okay. I thought I knew everything that needed to be known, or perhaps even could be known. All right. Okay. Uh, uh, congratulations, uh, Tony, on your on your career. It's wonderful. Uh, dean of Yale Law School, professor of law. Um, extraordinary. I mean, you deserve one of the great law schools in the country. Um, it, it, 
It's great. I, I, I just want to get your thoughts. We'll talk about your book some, but I want you to speak freely about, you know, your thinking and evolution of your thought, because that's certainly part of, um, of what you write about uh, in, your, in your book about uh, the divine. After disbelief on disenchantment, disappointment, eternity, and joy. And, and I want to get to that because I think it's very, very interesting and will be for the audience. Uh, but as I said to Claude, I think it would be an affectation to have you on and not ask you your view on the whole thing with Ukraine, your perspective on it. Well, boy, you know, you know? Uh, uh, hmm. I, I, I kind of toggle back and forth in my own thinking between what I, I guess I could call the long range view of it and the immediate short range view. The, the short range view is in some ways the easier one for me to take. Putin's done a terrible thing, uh, a dangerous thing. I think quite possibly for him and for his country, a deeply self-destructive thing. I think the chances of this playing out in a way that will leave Russia badly damaged, not just economically, but uh, prestige-wise, uh, as a uh, as a great power with authority and and clout, I think the chances of Russia being dramatically harmed in that respect are considerable. Um, what, what worries me? Uh, this is my you know my my ancient childhood nuclear war fear stirring at some deep level in my soul. What worries me is that there are so many opportunities for small missteps and miscalculations uh, on the long front between the uh-huh. Ukraine and the NATO countries. That yeah. it wouldn't take much for NATO forces and Russian forces to find themselves face-to-face shooting at one another. And if that happens, then it's very difficult to say where it goes and how it can be stopped. I, I think Putin is in a tough spot. Uh, we should keep the pressure up, but we have to be very mindful to give him an off-ramp so that he can back out of the room, uh, back out of the corner he's painted himself into and lick his wounds, but not push him further into a difficult spot that might cause him to lash out irrationally. The longer run range view is, you know, how big of a mistake was it in the exhilaration of the end of the Cold War to push uh, the NATO alliance as aggressively eastwards as we did. I've got oh, my doubts yeah. about that. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I, do you think Putin's nuts or not? Does it matter? I don't know. I, to me, it doesn't matter. I don't. I, I guess maybe in terms of the approach to him, you know, you talked about putting him in a corner, but you know, whether he's just malevolent and takes pleasure in just kill, he's killing people or he's, you know, somehow off the scale mentally. I, I, I don't know. I don't know that it really matters. And I'm not really sure it changes, changes the approach. He's made a reputation for himself as a very cold and calculated yeah. intelligence. Yeah. Former KGB officer, he doesn't yeah. make mistakes. He's very careful and strategic in his thinking. And here he's blundered horribly. I think, really blundered. And is he going to be so uh, fearful of losing credibility and face 
that he has to push on even more aggressively in a terrible direction. And he's pushing now the, you know, just the outright slaughter of civilians, oh. aiming at apartment buildings, suburban neighborhoods. You know, someone just pointed out, I thought it was a good observation, when we uh, left or abandoned uh, Afghanistan, Taliban took over, and they are a rough, cruel bunch of guys. And there were some, you know, a few people died, and, you know, there was, you know, a lot of, you know, up against the wall and, and, and some beatings. But this is massive warfare against innocent civilians, killing them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this yeah. is... Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. so uh, we, don't, we don't want to engage, right? I guess that's right. Do we get to a point... You know, I know you're, you're, you're a lawyer, a professor of law. You're also a moral philosopher of considerable clout. Do we see stuff on TV, which we're all watching, and we say we just can't take this anymore? We've got to do something. I've been listening to General Petraeus, who says, all right, everybody says we've got to do something. We've got to do something. Well, be careful, because what do you want? No fly zone? Then you shoot down a Russian jet? Then you're a war? And add to that, one of the things that bothers me, Tony, is this recent pact that Russia made, you know, with China. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, we have a weakened defense. You know, we've cut spending for defense way, way down. Um, I'm not sure we win that war uh, against Russia and China. But even if it's just Russia, they have enough nuclear weapons to take out a few cities. So I didn't want to confuse them saying too many things. Do do we get to the point where we say, I don't care. You know, we don't care. We've got to do something to help these people. And so let's do the no-fly zone. A a, a no-fly zone would be a strategic mistake of the first magnitude because Mm -hmm. the Russians will respond by shooting down the NATO planes that are policing the no-fly zone. And uh, how will we respond then? Uh, and but before you know it, we are at the threshold of a massive and un- con- unpredictable and perhaps uncontainable military confrontation yeah. between the Western countries and Russia. I, I think uh, th- this could be an opportunity to uh, perhaps make a little bit of headway in our relationship with China by inviting them quietly behind the scenes to join with us in bringing an end to this terrible business and, uh, and uh, helping Putin out of his uh, awkward corner and uh, and reaching an under a quiet understanding with the Chinese that the Russians are just out of control here and they're not behaving like a responsible great power in the world community. And what's their interest in that, Tony? Well, what's China's interest in taking that approach? Uh, um, possibly, I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating, really. But but possibly increasing their stature and credibility. As a, as a great power on the world stage, uh, they would like to divide the world with us. Well, that uh, makes us uncomfortable for, for understandable, indeed correct reasons. But um, Russia is misbehaving horribly. If China joined with us as a responsible party to tell this petulant 
and irrational child to behave himself and uh, and uh, settle his dispute with the Ukraine with international supervisors and uh, mediation and so on and so forth. China might have some interest in that. Maybe not. I don't know. It's very, I mean, this is, all I know is that uh, we have to avoid, I would say at all costs, a direct yeah. shooting war with Russia. That would yeah. just lies yeah. to yeah. I wish you were right. Maybe you are. But I tend to think, along with a lot of other people, that China looking at this says, well, they're weak. and Biden's weak. You know, we have really nothing to do with NATO. Uh, we're invited to join the U.S. to try to calm down this petulant child. Well, maybe we just take the route of, uh, of take, taking uh, t- uh, Taiwan. Yeah, that could be, Bill. And I think the larger point that you're correctly s- stressing is the perception of American weakness, yeah. which is not just a function of how we deal with Russia and Ukraine, but how we exited from Afghanistan, um, how we are conducting ourselves domestically, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the loss of self-confidence in our national purpose and national identity, which is spread across the board everywhere you look these days. And, uh, you know, China looks at us and at our culture wars and at the, the abdication of authority on the part of all of our leading intellectual and cultural institutions. And they say that's a that's a country that doesn't know itself anymore. That's right. Right. And right. that is a that is a, you know, a manifestation of weakness that uh, countries, strong countries that are paying attention are going to pounce on and exploit. Yeah. Oh, that's what worries me is that China and Russia, you know, they signed this uh, pact uh, a few weeks back. And now, um, you know, they see the uh, relative weakness of the United States and others and say, this is our moment. You know, this is our moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, the we- you know, the weakness comes in many different forms. It's expressed in many different ways. But, but one of them is the, the startling abdication of authority on the part of so many institutions in this country, which in the past have been responsible carriers of our uh, tradition of values and beliefs. It's, it's not as if we're all marching to a single band. You know, there's plenty, there's always been plenty of debate and disagreement in this country, and that's great, but the rapidity with which our colleges and universities, our leading museums, just across the board, have dropped the mantle of authority yeah. and given it up for the sake of what or in the name of what, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, I could describe it, and you could describe it too, what they, you know, what they say is the, you know, the standard under which we ought to be marching. But I, I just am, am shocked at the at the breadth and the rapidity with which this has happened. You know, you wrote uh, two books: the Assault on American Excellence, uh, and you do wrote Education's End, where our colleges and universities have given up on the meaning of life. Boy, that's music to my ears, both of them. Um, what's happened there? 
I mean, I don't know if you had the same experience at Williams that I did, but I mean, I was thrown off my game and I just had to stay up late at night and think of arguments to take on Professor Versenyi and Socrates, you know? Oh my God, Professor Versenyi. Yeah. He was one tough, brilliant customer. I loved his classes, but he was ferocious and uh, he knocked me off my game too, Bill. And it was, you know, it was disorienting and thrilling. Yeah. I, I remember those hours and with, you know, Bob Gaudino, my Bob beloved, Gaudino, yeah. You know, and uh, sitting and talking about Plato or Aristotle in class and then continuing yeah. the argument in the, in the, uh, in uh, the dining hall after school. Right. You know, after right, endless right. hours, and that was college, and yeah. it wasn't. You know, it was not an indoctrination. It was the farthest thing from an indoctrination. Uh, it was an opening up of minds, and I'm, you know, I'm absolutely sure you would say the same thing about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, I stayed up late, and I remember shutting my door in the fraternity house because a party was going on to see if I could defend Thrasymachus any better. <laughs> and he then he was defending himself against Socrates. I don't think I did very well. <laughs> that's a that's a losing campaign. Versenyi had. Oh, you know, I think it may have been that's when I came back. You know, Versenyi went to uh, a philosophy professor, folks. When he went to Texas, where I was getting my PhD, and he loved Texas. And the part of Texas he loved the most, Tony, was the rodeo. <laughs> You see this guy, this weird little, you know, trim, smart, you know, Hungarian, going all these rodeos in West Texas. What an image. What what a title for a a novel. That would be Versenyi at the Rodeo. That's it. But back to what you were saying. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember Neil McGaw. I took three courses in the English department, took a Shakespeare course. And I remember he said, he said, all right, boys, now we turn to Lear, King Lear. Gentlemen, I suggest you get your rest, sleep, exercise. This is an, an ordeal. This is an ordeal of the soul. And I was just going through the pages. Where is it? Where's the ordeal? And then, you know, as you read it, you read it carefully. Uh, yeah. Take it no, seriously. No. It, it is an ordeal of the soul. Williams was like that, was, was that for me. Graduate school in philosophy at Yale was that for me. Yeah. The, the yeah. Yale Law School, when I was there in the early 1970s, was very much that, Bill. You know, we had, you know, we had, uh, we had radicals and centrists and conservatives within the student body and on the faculty. And Bob Bork was on the faculty and Alex Bickle. He was my, Alex Bickle was my constitutional law professor. Oh, yeah, the great he, Bickle, yeah. He drove us liberals completely crazy. But it was thrilling. It was exciting. And I felt pushed and strained. And, uh, you know, uh, I knew I had to up my game if I was going to stay in it at all. And that, I guess what I would say about the law school now is that some of that remains. That's still true to a degree. But there is there, as there is almost everywhere in higher education, kind of a just a, I don't know quite how best to describe it. It's sometimes it has a sharp edge. More often, it's what Tocqueville called the quiet tyranny of majority opinion. That there are some things that can't 
that a, that a thoughtful person just wouldn't say and maybe even wouldn't believe. And, and uh, anyone who dares to think such thoughts or say such things is quietly uh, told that maybe he's just a little bit out of bounds here and he needs to trim his sails and come back into course. And I just, I can't stand that. It drives me nuts. You know, I, it, it, it's the, the self-imposed inhibitions, the self-censoring, uh, the smugness, the immodesty. Education begins in modesty and an appreciation of your own limitations and, yeah. and fallibility and stupidity, yeah. you know. Um, but there is a, a pervasive near universal belief on most American campuses these days that we have seen the light and the way we know what it is and uh, and we're going to show the other enlightened fools. Is that the way it is at Yale? It is very much, I would say. It, I mean, my uh, gosh, Yale, because it's Yale. I mean, and, you know, if Yale does it, lots of other places are going to do it. Uh, you know, that this is this is the gold standard. Yeah. Well, Yale, partly because it has had weak leadership over the last decade or so, has fallen victim to a greater degree than most other very prestigious colleges and universities to the culture of political correctness. We just won, Yale just won, if one is the right word, a lifetime award for the discouragement of free expression from this or- an organization called FIRE. Yeah. you probably heard of it. I, I don't know what it stands for. It's something like the, well, I don't know, but it, it's, it, it uh, you know, it monitors campus speech and uh, it's very libertarian in its basic outlook. And we just won a lifetime award for bad behavior uh, on the free speech front. And it's just such a, an embarrassment to Yale, really. It makes me ashamed of my school, which ought to be leading the way, but isn't, sadly. What were those incidents years ago, Tony, that I read about? I Sorry if it's a caricature. Uh, Halloween? Yes. Some students wearing sombreros? Yes. Uh, and the, some resident faculty were masters of, of a house yes. were removed. To, to tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. My good friend, Nicholas Christakis and his wife, Erica, they were the master and the co-master uh, of Silliman College, one of Yale's residential colleges. And um, the Council for Student Affairs or some official central uh, university bureau sent out a message before Halloween, this was in 1916, in 2016, could have been 1916, in 2016, urging students to be cautious in their choice of dress, that uh, some costumes are offensive uh, to others and, uh, uh, and they shouldn't choose a costume that belittles or mocks or makes fun of, et cetera, et cetera. And Erica Christakis, Nick, uh, Nicholas's wife wrote a, a very calm, measured email to the students in her college, in Silliman College, which said, um, "You're grown-ups. Um, be cautious and thoughtful, and uh, and uh, make good judgments, and and uh, 
if anybody has a, a problem with anybody's costume, why don't you talk it through, have a conversation. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure it'll all be fine. And that was it. It was nothing more disturbing uh, or radical than ordinary parental good advice. And the students went nuts. And uh, uh, caricatured Erica as a, uh, uh, an insensitive racist who didn't understand the deep wounding effect. You could write the script on and on and on. And 600, faculty, 600 students and a couple of hundred faculty signed a petition against her. And well, what's, what was that she said that was objectionable? Your nothing. description of it, there's nothing in there. The only thing that was offensive was that she told the students that if they had problems, they should work it out themselves. You know, when you you tell your kid at the playground, if you you get into a pushing match with young Joey, you know, don't come running to me in the first instance. See if you can work it out. Uh, If you can't, let me know and maybe I'll intervene. Talk to him. And uh, her refusal to take sides and to join with the correctness oh, in condemning uh, the, the choice of this costume or that costume was what gave offense. And uh, it was a terrible thing. And what was, Bill, what was really most upsetting about it to me wasn't so much what the students did. Students are students, you know, they're, you know, they're young, they do crazy things. I was young, I did crazy things. I got a lot of sympathy for them. Um, but the failure of the president of the university to stand up and say yeah. anything clear and decisive about the situation, you know, yeah. very depressing. And it caught the nation's attention. And there was a lot of commentary in the press, which I'm sure you saw. I forgot how anodyne were her comments, at least to me. Totally. You know. Have have discussion, work work it out, exactly. talk talk amongst yourselves. You know, exactly. instead yeah. of what? I mean, what's the alternative to yeah, yeah, ad- the, the, identify the, them the, to the thought police? I'm sorry. The alternative but, is that a student who puts on a uh, a sombrero, you know, a student to whom the sombrero is not part of his native cultural. Armory, who puts on a som- sombrero, should be called out and shamed and made to sit I in see. the corner uh, for a, okay. an afternoon to think about his uh, sins. Is Yale better today? Not much. You know, I mean, we just had a, a, a terrible uh, episode at the law school this fall that involved an email that a student who is himself a member of the Federalist Society and kind of on the, you know, I suppose on the conservative end of the uh, spectrum among sure. our students, uh, sent out an email in uh, inviting a group of students to a, a trap house party, you know, and he, he was sponsored by the Native American Law Students Association. Uh, and co-sponsored by the Federal Society. And he invited the students to whom this email went to the first annual trap house party. And a a group of students, of African-American students and their friends, were outraged at the use of the phrase trap house, 
which they said carries uh, a whole set of connotations relating to crack houses and the black urban poor and white exploitation. And he had also made the terrible mistake in the email of saying they were going to serve um, uh, um, uh, Popeye's fried chicken. Ah. Uh, it turned out, he explained, best, it was best. Popeye's because Popeye's is right around the corner from his apartment, and that's where he was going to get his chicken. But yeah. a, So anyway, that was bad enough, the reaction to this. I think, you know, it was kind of juvenile, but that was the worst of it. But what is happened, trap? What is a trap house? Is a trap house mean something? Independently uh, of what those students it, interpreted. In the course of this, I learned more about the etymology of the phrase trap house. Okay, okay. Than I thought I ever would. But originally, it was associated with um, um, apartments in poor neighborhoods where you would go in through a kind of a trap door and you would buy drugs and then you would exit out the back where you couldn't be seen. But then it, 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 it's meaning blurred and it came to mean something like, you know, a raucous, rambunctious place that uh, kids get together, maybe, you know, when they want to have a party in their parents' home when the parties aren't, when the parents aren't there. Um, that sounds more likely is what was in his mind, wouldn't you guess? Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. Of yeah. course. But, but Bill, what happened then is the really interesting and, and shocking thing. The dean for student affairs, the law school's dean for student affairs, and her deputy, who oversees the law school's program of diversity, equity, and inclusion, called this student in and uh, explained to him that his words had been offensive to uh, some other students in the school and asked him to make an apology. And he said, I don't want to make an apology. I didn't do anything wrong. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll draft the apology for you. All you need to do is sign it. And this student had the foresight to take his phone with him into the meeting and tape recorded the session with the dean of students. And you can hear it. It's online. It was horrendous beyond belief. And some of us on the faculty just went nuts and said, this woman uh, who's running this office and her deputy should be fired on the spot. This is absolutely, you know, right out of, uh, uh, you know, Arthur Kessler or George Orwell or uh, or the Soviet manual on interrogation. What's going on here? So this was... This was the fall of 2021. So if you ask whether things are better on the Yale campus, I'm not so sure. Wow. Your latest book, by the way, the other two books about the meaning of life and excellence, uh, we'll have uh, reference to those on our website and encourage people to get them. But your latest book, I think, is After Disbelief, Disenchantment, Disappointment, Eternity, and Joy. I haven't read it. I just haven't had the time. When I saw it, I just immediately wanted to get you on the podcast and probably should have waited a few weeks till I could read everything. But one of the reviews says an intimate philosophic quest for eternity amidst the, amidst the disenchantments and disappointments of our time. You come to God because of the failure of other things? In a 
in a manner of speaking. I start the book with um, a very brief autobiographical uh, introduction and try to give the reader some sense of where my own perplexities about these questions begin uh, and what what has motivated me over now a very long time to pursue them. I grew up in a home that was ruthlessly atheist. Uh, My father was born in an Orthodox Jewish family on the Lower East Side in New York. His parents sent him when he was 16 to the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati to become a rabbi, which Mm -hmm. uh, dutiful son that he was, he did, became a rabbi. I was a practicing rabbi for a couple of years and then quit because he he had no feel for it. And he, he said to me many years later that whenever he walked in a room, people would become quiet. Uh, and he, he, didn't like, he didn't like being the rabbi in the room. So he yeah, the quit. wet blanket, yeah, yeah. So he quit, and through a series of kind of serendipitous uh, happenings, found his way to Los Angeles in the mid-30s and became first a radio uh, writer and producer and then a television screenwriter and had a very successful career writing shows like Gunsmoke and The Fugitive and The Untouchables. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, my favorites. Lord. Yeah, they were good shows. What and, was his name? Uh, Harry Cronman. And you can, you can yeah. still, his shows still appear sometimes on late night television. Sure, sure. I yeah. still get re- residual checks from reruns in t- Taiwan and uh, Argentina wow. and things like wow. that. Wow, wow. Uh, and then in the early 40s, he met and married my mom, who was born in Los Angeles and grew up in a, a, an evangelical Christian home. Of the, wow. of the Southern Baptist variety. Wow. And uh, her, her mother was really a serious revivalist. Took my mom around to hear uh, Amy Semple McPherson and the other fire brands of the time. And uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway, make a, for them a long story short, my, my parents each had a, a profound introduction to religion in their lives, and they both turned against it ferociously and resolved that their two children, me and my brother, would have no exposure to religion at all. They, they kept us from it as you would keep a child from poison. They, they locked God away in a closet and told us never, ever, ever to open that door. So what happens when... Uh, you know, a child is told something is really dangerous and you can't touch it. You get a little curious about it. Yeah. And when I came to Williams uh, in the fall of 1963, I was very interested in philosophy. I it wasn't yet an interest in religion, but as I began to study philosophy, and to read Plato and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas and Descartes and Kant and even Nietzsche, I mean, on and on, all of the great figures, what I discovered was that the deepest questions of philosophy for them, for all of them, were entangled with questions of theology. That you 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 can't remove the theology 
from any of the thinkers I've just mentioned and leave their thought intact. It's an inextricable component of it. They're all thinking about God, worried about God. Does God exist? What is God? What powers does God have, et cetera, et cetera. Did so, you include the Greeks there? Yes. Plato and Aristotle? Very much. Okay. Very okay. much. And in fact, thanks to Dan O'Connor, who was my beloved teacher of philosophy in the philosophy department, I became obsessed with the question of how to think about the differences between the God of the Greek philosophers of Plato and Aristotle on the one hand, and the God of all the great thinkers in the Abrahamic tradition, the Christian principally, but the other great Abrahamic traditions as well, Judaism and Islam. Uh, The God of, uh, of Augustine, is not the God of Aristotle. Uh, They are radically different. Aristotle's God really is the indwelling divinity of the world itself, you might say, the eternality of the world itself. And Augustine's God is a God beyond the world who exists before and apart from it and brings the world into being out of nothing. Um, in a creative act of unfathomable uh, freedom. So O'Connor got me thinking about these two gods and, and, and what the relationship between them is. Uh, and there were certain things about each of them that attracted me. You know, I like certain things about the Greek god, the pagan Greek god, and I like certain things about Augustine's god. And so I embarked on a long, decades-long mission to see if I could mix and match them, you know, if I could borrow a little from one and borrow a little from the other and, uh, and uh, compose a third god uh, that would be a tailor-made to fit my own deepest beliefs and convictions. And then at some point, I read Spinoza. Or maybe I should say I reread Spinoza because I had been introduced to Spinoza my sophomore year uh, at Williams. And when I read him for the first time, my reaction was, this is great stuff. This is great. And it's quite possibly true, but I don't understand it. And I'm going to have to put it on the bookshelf and come back to it later in life. (laughs) So I did. And when I did, I found, you might call it, I suppose, my third way. Uh, my happy uh, synthesis of the of the Greek and Christian gods that I'd been struggling for so long to reconcile. And in this latest book, I, I try to explain my Spinozism to an audience of readers who are not specialists. This is not a book that's meant for people who are steeped in the philosophical a tradition and who know all of these works intimately or even casually. It, it's really meant for readers who are spiritually alert, curious, and who have uh, spent some time reflecting on their own experience as a, as a human being with anxieties and perplexities and, and wonder and, and the most basic human stuff and is trying to make sense of it and asking him or herself, well, gee, in in a world in which everything seems to 
come and go, to come in with the tide and go out with the tide where nothing lasts forever. Is there anything that lasts forever? What does that little word eternity mean? Does it have any potency? Or has our hurly-burly, ever-changing world drained it of all significance and value? And one of the main thoughts in this book is that we human beings cannot live without eternity. That uh, the idea of eternity and striving, the, the longing to reach it, is part of the human equipment. It's part of what makes us the, uh, the complex, uh, joyous, tragic animal that we are. And so I want to restore some substance to this idea of eternity, but do it in a way that will be intelligible to people who don't already belong to a faith tradition. So it's a, it's a third way. It's a, an invitation of sorts. Um, I thought, Tony, when you started that you found e- God or eternity uh, kind of out of frustration with uh, Hurley Burley. Mm. And this is a place that you could rest. And then since it was a place it was re- that you could rest, you then decided to call that your faith. Mm-hmm. But it goes deeper than that. It's more than that. I mean, I think, you know, people ask me, why are you Catholic? And I, I give a flip answer that I learned from the novelist Walker Percy. He said, well, given the choices, you know, uh, vegetarianism, cannibalism, a druid, you know, <laughs> it's not so crazy. Um, well, let's talk about this, this lady in your life who was an evangelical Christian background. What do you say to someone who says, my faith is my personal relationship to Jesus Christ? Yeah. Well, um, do you say, hey, I'm, I'm a Jew. I can't do that. No, I, I don't. I, I generally, if, if they're interested in talking to me, yeah. um, that already is a very welcome sign. And I take it as an invitation to a serious conversation about religion. And my response would be to, in, to begin by inviting them to expand on that. And, uh, 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 and I would I enter in, I, I have, I, I have discovered that I have easier and more fruitful conversations with my evangelical and Catholic and Orthodox Jewish friends than I do with my secular colleagues at the law school who no. are not interested in the topic. Yeah, no patience for it at all. Don't want to talk about no it No patience all. for it, absolutely. Um, and so I get invited to go and speak at Catholic universities and, uh, 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 and uh, Orthodox Jewish gatherings. And, you know, I'm often the odd man out but I know enough or I have learned enough about these other traditions to be able to converse in, um, in a sympathetic spirit from the inside. Yeah. Uh, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what, what your colleagues are lacking as you. Nothing makes about me them. happier. Nothing makes me happier than to find a Catholic who wants to talk about Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. 
then I am in heaven. This is just joy for me. We're a Jew who wants to talk about Maimonides. How wonderful is this? Yeah. Is there an institutional home for you? Do you go to uh, temple, church, <laughs> anything? Um, I'm uh, Jewish, not by dogmatic conviction, but by cultural elite allegiance. I feel uh, uh, an attachment to what I think of as my people. Um, we have endured for a very long time. And, uh, you know, it, I, I just feel like I have a responsibility to do my bit to, to keep the, the show going. So when uh, Nancy and I had our children, we saw to it that they were all bar, bat, mitzvah. And even though we have a completely secular home, you know, we celebrate Passover and, uh, uh, and uh, once in a rare while, I'll go to temple on the high holy days. But I don't, I don't have, I'm not religiously musical in that sense. Very interested in, I feel, uh, as I say, a cultural connection, a cultural affinity to Judaism. But that's a, that's a different thing. I'm kind of like, you know, I feel like Spinoza, who got kicked out of his synagogue yeah. in Amsterdam, and ended up spending most of his time with uh, with lapsed Catholics who yeah. with the philosophical problems he was exploring. And you ended up with the Yale faculty. <laughs> I ended up with the Yale faculty. <laughs> and thank God I have tenure because it, yeah. gives, it gives me the easy freedom yeah. to say such things as this. I guess if you do talk about this, some of your colleagues will say to each other, what 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 is it with Tony? What's yeah, going on? Yeah, listen, <laughs> and, they, yeah. they, and and they'll you know they 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 uh, they will they not only think it but they'll say it out loud and that's okay. I don't mind that, but uh, you know there are enough students at the law school who are interested in these questions mm-hmm. that I'm able to find a good company. For example, I'll just give you one small example. Two years ago. I taught a year-long seminar that I called, I gave it, I think, an overly cute title. I called it Aristotle in Abraham's Tent. And the idea, oh, yeah. the oh, idea yeah. was to explore the reception of Aristotle's philosophy, of his physics and metaphysics in particular, in each of the three Abrahamic religions. We started with Avicenna and Al-Ghazali and went on to Maimonides and then to Aquinas after having spent seven or eight weeks on Aristotle. And I had 15 students who stuck with me for the whole ride, you know. Uh, so I have there, I have plenty of conversational partners. Yeah, well, there you go. And there's that book then reflecting back on your other books. Uh, they're hungry for this. They're interested in talking exactly. about the meaning of life. They exactly. would like to know, you know, uh, who am I? What's my destiny? What am I to do? Exactly. You know, exactly. and they're and they're not getting much of it. Right. True. All true. All right. We yeah. have to let you go. This has been great and a, a wonderful, That's fun, yeah, reunion. Nice way to do it. And uh, congratulations to you, Tony. Really, thank you. Brilliant, thank brilliant you. Career. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great catching up and reminiscing and having a chance to chat with you. I've enjoyed it hugely. 
All right, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. You know, I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family, with your friends. We'll catch up next week.